0: Let's pray together as we open God's Word. Father, thank you that you have caused the great realities of eternity, of our universe to live within our souls. There's no other explanation for these things, but that you are a gracious God who has revealed himself to us, and you have opened our hearts to gospel truth. And out of that experience brought a living hope to rest within us. We praise you for that. And we want that hope to deepen and mature. We genuinely ask that it would control all that we are and all that we do. We we have such little time on planet Earth before we are gathered in your presence. And we don't want to waste One moment, we don't want our minds and hearts to be ensnared by the the great difficulties and stress and strain of, of our day. We don't want to be captured by the fears that so many people live with day in and day out because you've not called us to fear. Your word tells us you've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And we want to live in that way. Your word is life to us. And how we thank you for the precious word. We thank you for Mark's gospel. And as we continue to make our way through it, let the the person of Jesus Christ come to life in our souls in the way that you desire. Because there is no greater reality in all the universe than that Jesus Christ is Lord and King that He is the crucified one, the resurrected one, and He is the coming again one. So let the Lord Jesus be enthroned upon our hearts today and let our minds be brought under His sweet dominion, that we may think your thoughts, that we may live out those very deeds and works that you desire for us. All of this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Mark 13, we come now to a chapter that is filled with all kinds of fascinating and thrilling and perhaps even a little fear-creating truth, but what I hope we will be able to see and focus on is the priorities that Jesus lays down for us, for this is a chapter where the disciples have asked two particular questions that we'll see this morning And they want to know when certain things are going to take place and they want to know what the signs of these end times events will be. And Jesus will answer some of that, but he's also going to redirect their hearts away from the whole uh, chronology and timelines and charts and the kinds of things that we tend to develop when we think of the last days. And so my prayer as we take a portion of this chapter this week is that we would be able to do so paying very close attention to where Christ calls us to set our hearts. He's actually going to use some terms, as we'll see in just a moment, where he says, in essence, you need to be clear on this. And so when he says, this is what you need to be clear on, that's what we need to pay attention to. Friday's headlines were rather disturbing, weren't they? I don't know if you saw all of these, but these were the major headlines that at least came across uh, on on my news feeds. The global stock market, uh, I think everybody is aware of that, but in addition to things like coronavirus here nationally and what we're talking about, we've been aware of it in China, but it continues to spread around the world. Politically, the South Carolina primary was was the big thing in the news, the Milwaukee shooting, which was very troubling to us once again. Were you aware even that Syria and Turkey are actually battling at the border? And and there's a lot of saber rattling even outside of that. And then there's a significant locust plague in East Africa, which almost seems like a a small consequence in comparison to other things. But you know what? If you're living there and you're watching them destroy your crops and your vegetation, it's catastrophe. And so we look at those headlines and we say, what is happening? Is this the end? You know, are we a- about to enter the seven years of tribulation? I've heard about that, some of you say, and that, that terrifies me. And even this latest installment of the coronavirus, which you've probably seen all kinds of, of, of histories laid out of how many pandemics have have come across and some even connecting it to the election cycle and, you know, conspiracy theorists love to run wild with that. Well, you know, it's interesting that every two years there's some major pandemic that hits the world and, you know, maybe there's a connection, maybe not. What's common to every generation, though, is that the fear of those unknowns, the fear of things we cannot control often drives us to make rash and impulsive decisions, If we could only know the future, then we could take the necessary precautions and make provisions to guard ourselves from the risks. And that's what the disciples in this passage are are likely thinking about. They're beginning to connect some things that Jesus has been teaching with the present statements, one of which he's about to make here in the opening verses of Mark 13. And Jesus gives them truth and consequently us the same truth and perspective that he intends not only to help us understand where we are, understand a little bit about what is coming, but perhaps most importantly, what our personal focus and our participation in his great mission must be in these last days. If you've never stood on the west side of our valley, say at the foot of the Ochre Mountains and looked across to the east, you should do that sometime. And depending on where you stand and, and the, the time of year and the lighting and all that, you might even see something this spectacular. And as you look across to the Wasatch Range, from a distance, it, it looks beautiful. I mean, the peaks are high and, and right now snow-capped, as, as you might see. And no, I did not take this picture. Um, and you perhaps even said to yourself as you stood on the western side looking to the east, you know, those mountains are big and impressive, but they also look close. And, and that is true to a certain extent, until you actually pull out a map and maybe Google your place... And if you're on the west side of the valley, and, and I know you can't see it, but in the bottom right-hand corner, it tells you the scale of this particular map. And so right right down here, see, between my two fingers, that's, that's two miles represented right there. And you start going across the valley, and you realize, you know, those mountains that look so close, they're not actually close. And as a matter of fact, some of those peaks that from a distance look like they're butted up one, one, one against another, they're five, 10, 15 miles apart. And if you were to drive across the valley, you would see that after a period of time you would come to one of those peaks, but you'd have to keep driving for a period of time. You'd come to another one of those peaks, and you'd realize there's a greater distance and amount of time necessary to travel those distances than what you thought when you were standing at the foot of the Ochre Mountains on the western side of the valley. Well, what Jesus does in this particular passage is to give us a little bit of perspective, He doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't even highlight all the the big peaks of eschatology, as it were. He's going to touch on a couple of events with, I think, a a great deal of clarity, but then some other things he's going to leave very vague. And what I want to make sure today and next week, I think we'll be able to get through chapter 13 in two weeks. I want us to make sure we're not missing the really big peaks and getting so caught up in chronologies, and timelines that, that we fail to see what Jesus himself says is most important. Some of the events in this chapter were very near at hand when Jesus spoke, like the destruction of the temple. That's about 40 years away at that time, and, and remember, for those of you who've been with us, uh, the, the last... I don't know how many messages, but because it's all taken place in the context of the temple precinct, it's the last week before crucifixion, the temple has just dominated the conversations, dominated a fair amount of of Christ's teaching. That temple is going to be destroyed in short order. There are other things that Jesus speaks of that we know still have not yet transpired. And here we are 2,000 years beyond the moment where he stands or sits on the Mount of Olives, with his disciples looking back over the city and says, let me tell you about these things. Jesus actually de-emphasizes questions about timing of particular events, but focuses our attention on his gospel purpose. So even today and, and next week, there are a couple of key phrases that I want you to pay attention to. And then notice how the chapter could really be broken down into four smaller parts, two of which come under the little phrase, these things. And that'll have reference to some things that are near at hand. And then Jesus will use the phrase, those days, uh, several different times. And I think that the, that phrase has reference to things that are future. Now, from our vantage point, many of these things look like they could, you know, we could just be there in a moment. And, and some, I do believe we could. But then we recognize through the teaching that there are events that have to unfold over a period of time... And there's also an interesting little statement in the middle of this that I think messes with everybody's timetable. All right? So let's keep the big thing in focus, and that is what Christ is going to call us to is faithful discipleship right now. I love the words of one author, a commentary that's been very helpful in my study of Mark, and I've shared several of of this man's quotations with you before, but let me just read a, a little paragraph Mark flags this event with his most pronounced editorial admonition in the gospel, let the reader understand. That's verse 14, which will actually be next week. Reminding readers that events, listen to this, events surrounding the destruction of the temple and fall of Jerusalem are a type and foreshadowing of a final sacrilege before the eschaton, that is, before the end of the age. This admonition... Let the reader understand, as well as the concluding admonition in this chapter to watch, to be alert, to beware, indicates that the purpose of this discourse in Mark 13 is not primarily to provide a timetable or blueprint for the future so much as to exhort readers to faithful discipleship in the present. So it's great to study the Word of God, and when we think of the end times, to to try to get it as clear in our minds as we can. The sequence of events, the great characters and figures and and movements of of God's work, and even the resistance of those forces that are hostile to the world, but don't lose sight of this most important truth. God calls you to faithfulness right now where you are. So let's read together the first 13 verses of Mark 13. Mark 13. You'll find this portion on page 849 if you're using one of the Bibles from the, the seat rack in front of you. This is the second book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's quite gripping, isn't it? And there's more. You can read ahead in the coming week, but let's go back to what Jesus said at the outset, the prophecy, so to speak, that raises this initial set of questions. And and they're in the temple precinct, and one of the disciples points out these buildings that inspire all. What wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings, this disciple says. It's Herod's temple that at this point has been under construction for 50 years and would not actually be completed for another almost 30 years. One historian writes, the excavation of the Western Wall has uncovered many massive Herodian stones relatively untouched by the ravages of time. One stone has gained attention owing to its enormous dimensions. It is more than 15 meters in length, 45 for the sake of those of you who don't do metrics, 45 feet, two and a half meters in height. And because its width is unknown, estimations of its weight vary, ranging from 420 tons to 600 tons. I share that with you simply so you'd have some sense of why this disciple would say, What wonderful stones! And how much more amazing it is when Jesus says, You see these buildings and stones? Not one of them is going to be left resting on top of another. This is not like somebody bringing, you know, a, a, a little caterpillar bulldozer to your house and knocking a few bricks off out of your foundation. Your bricks weigh maybe a couple of pounds. We're talking about stones that weigh hundreds of tons. Another historian describes the the portico of the temple. It was 45 feet wide and consisted of three aisles supported by four rows of columns. The columns were crowned with Corinthian capitals and rose to a height of 40 feet supporting a cedar-paneled ceiling above. The thickness of each column was such that it would take three men with outstretched arms touching one another to envelop it. And in the center of the esplanade, the big courtyard area around the temple, stood the sanctuary. It rose to a height of 50 meters and was a visual collage of gold and silver, crimson and purple, radiating the rising sun like a snow-clad mountain. It was, in fact, a wonderful complex buildings. But here's the prophecy that raises the questions about this massive complex. Jesus says, there will not be left here one stone. We may have more opportunity next week to address some of these specifics, but let me just give you a little brief taste of what the Jewish historian Josephus records actually happened in AD seventy. He wrote, for all the rest of the wall, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. This is the complex we're talking about. And just so you have some perspective, that complex would hold about 12 football fields. All right? So, so this is not your you know, neighborhood park. This is a massive complex, and Josephus has just said that when the Romans came through in AD 70, they so thoroughly raised it to the ground that it would be difficult to believe it had ever been inhabited. This was the end which Jerusalem came to by the madness of those that were for innovations, a city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame among all mankind, brought to rubble. Commentator James Edwards raises a priority question for all of us to think about how much of our nationalism, culture, and civilization itself could or should withstand a similar judgment of God. And you have walked through some of the history and teaching and seen what Jesus did first to to cleanse the temple, trying to restore it to its proper purpose, that it would be a house of prayer for all nations and not the center of of religious commerce and greed, clothed and kind of cloaked, I should say, in in some kind of, of loyalty to God, but it was false. And what a grief that Jesus, who is The heart of the temple. I mean, he's what it all stands for and and represents. He spent almost a full week there and found nothing but one widow from last week's text who gave her all. That's the only positive thing that has been stated or revealed about the temple and all the sacrifices and such that have taken place in this particular week. And now Jesus says it's going to be destroyed. I wonder about the forms and structures of our own worship. And if we have erected things in our lives that really are void of God Himself, and it just gives us an opportunity to to hide behind a religious facade, but the reality is there, there is no reality in it because you have no personal relationship with God yourself. There's no sincerity of heart underneath your service and wonderful stones and wonderful buildings of religiosity, so to speak, but no substance. Could that be true of you today? What makes you think that God would let you continue as you are and not bring about a disciplinary destruction, as it were, so that you might come to face reality? Now, in response to that prophecy, there are two questions that that come from the disciples. Look at verse 4, "When will these things be?" That is, when will the destruction of the temple be? And then they ask, "What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished?" Well, notice how Jesus begins to answer that because he he actually gives a, a little bit of a warning and in verses 5 and 9 there's a there's the same Greek term that's actually translated in two different ways in English. Look at the text with me. First of all at verse 5, What does Jesus say to them? See that no one leads you astray. And the little word see is the first occurrence of of this term. Now go to verse nine. Be on your guard. Do you know that if we were reading the original gospel that Mark penned, it's the same term we just saw in verse five. One little word. See, be on your guard. Why would we translate it in two different ways? Well, because. Those of you who are are into language, you know that it's very rare that in translating from one language to another, you just have a one word for one word exchange. I mean, there there are examples of that, but sometimes there are concepts that require a a little more help, a a little more uh, perspective or definition or development here, and that's exactly what the English translators are trying to do, to give us some perspective on this, and if you keep Digging into how this term is is used, you would see that the whole point is that that we are to be people who are looking or seeing with clarity. So Jesus is saying, you know, I'm going to talk about some of the answers to your questions, but the really important things are what I want to set in front of you, and you need to see these with all clarity. Because couldn't Jesus have said, well, this temple is actually going to be destroyed in about 30 years? Well, sure he could have. Because he knew, and and maybe in answer to the the, the signs question, what will be the signs? I mean, he could have given a comprehensive catalog of all of those things. He could have even said, here's exactly what's going to happen. But Christ's answer reveals that the timing of these events is not really the priority that he wants those disciples or us to focus on. And so that brings us out of this prophecy that creates these questions to the purpose that shapes our vision. Look at verse 6. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. Here's the first big category. Don't be led astray by false messiahs. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. Do you know that in the years preceding the Jewish revolt, one historian writes, uh, several messianic pretenders arose. In the mid-40s, Thutis, who's actually referred to in Acts 5.36, he boasted of various signs, including the ability to part the Jordan River. That's a godlike, messianic type of power, isn't it? And according to Josephus, he did in fact lead many astray. Josephus adds another account about an Egyptian who claimed to be a prophet, who likewise succeeded in deceiving a great number in that populace. You fast forward through the centuries to our own country and nation, a man named William Davies who was part of a a splinter group out of the the Latter-day Saints called the Kingdom of Heaven, located in Walla Walla, Washington from 1867 to 1881. He taught his followers that he was the Archangel Michael who had previously lived as the biblical Adam, Abraham, and David. And when his son Arthur was born on uh, February 11, 1868, Davies declared that the infant was the reincarnated Jesus, and people followed him. Jim Jones, some of you would remember that catastrophic uh, event where he had led his followers to Guyana, and there was a mass suicide, and after he uh, instructed those people to destroy themselves by drinking this poison, he himself committed suicide. Or Marshall Applewhite, Heaven's Gate Religious Group, uh, committed ma- mass suicide in March 26, 1997. They were making an attempt to rendezvous with what they thought was a spaceship hiding behind the comet hale And it seems laughable to us to hear some of these stories, but were it not for the human loss and the great tragedy of that, we would, we would quickly dismiss these things. Or Alan John Miller, who's a former Jehovah's Witness and current leader of the Australian-based Divine Truth Movement, he says today... Uh, As far as I know, he he is alive at this very moment, but telling people he is the Messiah. Every age has seen false messiahs, and Jesus is saying, don't be led astray by them. Now, it's an important question for us to ask. How how do people get led into this thing? A couple of quick thoughts come to my mind. One is that they don't Really know this book personally, and so that's why we continue to encourage you to be people of the book. You need to know the Word of God for yourself. We're going to do our best to be faithful here as we preach it and teach it. I hope I never stand and preach something that's inaccurate, let alone heretical, but I'm also an imperfect messenger. and that means there are going to be weeks where I say stuff that doesn't quite square up. That's why you have to be diligently studying the word for yourself. So question number one is, are you a person who's in this book for yourself? Some of you say, I I don't even know where to start. It's so overwhelming, and I I tried reading it once, and it got really confusing. It was discouraging to me. Hey, let's talk, because there are some beautiful places for you to enter this, this glorious book that I think you will find accessible, manageable. Are you a person who's in the book? Now, this almost seems like nonsensical to say it in this comment, but are you connected to the body of Christ? You're here today. That's a good thing, but but some of you are still kind of floating around. You attend worship services, and, and today it happens to be a gospel hope. Maybe next week it'll be another place. Maybe some of you will just come back week by week, but attending a service like this is very different from connecting to the people of God in a meaningful way. That provides safety and accountability. It provides encouragement. You need the prayer support of your fellow brothers and sisters. And when you're struggling with your faith, as we all do, you need people to come around you and and lay their hands on you and pray over you or hug you or just encourage you, sending you scripture through texting or or other means of communication. You need the people of God. Those are the first two things that come to my mind against guarding against this being led astray by false messiahs. The second thing, look at verses 7 and 8. Don't be alarmed by scary reports. And there are a bunch of them right here, aren't there? When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. Jesus is giving us these things, not that we would be uh, lured into speculations as another author I read this week writes, but to anchor us to watchfulness and faithfulness in the present. Do you notice this? Look at that little phrase. Jesus calls them what? End of verse 8. The beginning of the birth pains. And he's saying to us, Don't be alarmed, don't be filled with apprehension. Things are gonna happen. Now, the beginning of birth pains, though, that's that's something that every mother here relates to. The rest of us have some knowledge of it, but not firsthand experience. Fathers stereotypically take a bad rap. The beginning of birth pains, and you know, dads are sometimes portrayed as being set off in a panic. Classic examples of, you know. Dad's jumping in the car, leaving mom behind, racing to the hospital, just like totally loses his mind. And certainly, there have been plenty of fathers like that. But you know what? Sometimes the church acts like that. Coronavirus? <laughs> Stock market meltdown? <laughs> Bernie Sanders being elected? <laughs> Donald Trump being reelected? <laughs> And we end up looking a lot more like that than we'd ever want to. And Jesus is saying, do not be alarmed. These are not things to be anxious about. Now, the birth pains, any mom would tell you, are pains. They're hard. It's difficult. But they're necessary to... A glorious end, aren't they? And the Lord even talks about after that child is born, mom's not thinking about the pain she just went through, is she? There's a sweetness about this picture to me. There's a kind of serenity. And you know, because our Lord is who he is and because he's given us perspective, even when those, those pains in our world begin to grip our souls we are people of faith and understanding who say it has to be this way and these are the pains that are actually going to lead to something glorious now in christ's day this metaphor was particularly meaningful because for good or for bad a woman's worth was tied to her bearing of children and she had to endure the birth pains of delivery in order to achieve the status of mother. And Jesus is making what I think is a particularly powerful point in that particular culture that the present birth pains of, of suffering will result in something really remarkable. And it's not just the, the birth of, of children. It's actually the consummation of, of birthing a church. It's the consummation of receiving everything we've hoped for and longed for. Everything that we feared in those moments of suffering might be lost, yet yet Christ in his infinite wisdom has ordained that the suffering itself and the birth pains that, that accompany all that are the means through which this glory is achieved. Here's a third point. Not only does the Lord say, don't be led astray by false messiahs, don't be alarmed by scary reports, don't be surprised by suffering. Look at verse 9. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. Then look at verse 12, brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That doesn't sound like something I want to sign up for, but the Lord in his kindness and wisdom is saying, but this is the way it's going to be. Here's a beautiful truth that every one of those terms used to describe that suffering, three times the word deliver is used, verses 9, 11, and 12. Then he talks about being beaten. Then he talks about standing before rulers and being hated by all. As we were reading through that, were any of you thinking to yourself, that's what Jesus endured at every point and is about to? This very week where he's given us teaching, all of that, he experienced, and through His suffering, we are saved. You know, if you read through the book of Acts, all of these things that Jesus has described are found there. In Acts 5:32 and 33, we read of the disciples saying, though they were facing opposition at this point, and, and rulers were coming to them saying, "Shut it down." stop preaching, stop healing, stop doing these things that you are doing. And they say, we are witness to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when the rulers heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And you continue reading through that passage. It says that when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were, listen to this, counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, I don't, because I don't think we're in that crucible of suffering, we haven't received the necessary grace to go through that. I stand in awe that people could suffer so much physically, and they're going to suffer even greater than this. But they're actually walking out of that suffering, the beating, the persecution, and they're rejoicing and saying, what a privilege What a privilege to be counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. Whose name are they talking about? Well, it's Jesus, obviously, right? This suffering is the direct result of our association with Jesus. And if we're going to be faithful to him, we must never, never back away from association with him, but even press harder and deeper into association with him and say, let come what may. Jesus is everything. And Jesus is saying, don't be surprised by suffering, because if you're associated with me and if you participate in my mission, it it will happen. So again, he's repeating some phrases. And here is another one be on your guard, see this with all clarity. And then finally, endure to the end. In verse 13, Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. We should not kid ourselves about the cost of following Jesus. It's been a sobering thing in recent years to hear what are being described as deconversion stories, and there are two faces, well, three faces there too, but Two particular stories that have been in recent news where a pastor like Josh Harris there on the left has has abandoned the faith. Some of you have probably even read books that he has written. Uh, I, I know I've read a couple of them through the years and, and was very encouraged, helped by some of the things he said. And, and and within the last couple of years, he's undergone some kind of spiritual metamorphosis where he absolutely denies the deity of Jesus Christ, denies the truths of the gospel, has even apologized for things he's written and preached in the past, and walked away from Christ. The two men on the right, I'm less familiar with, but I was struck by this story as I read it this week, that these two social media personalities that for a long time you know, made it known they were Christians and followers of Jesus, but not anymore. The scary thing is that because they have such a massive following, they're probably going to lead others down that same path that that questions the authority of God's word that says, I just can't believe it anymore, this seems like there are too many gaps and holes and difficulties, and and I would submit to you, some of you may be struggling with some of the gaps or or difficulties, let's talk about them. God hasn't answered everything, but God has many powerful answers to our greatest concerns and, and questions. Jesus is reminding us that faithfulness endurance is necessary and notice what he says the one who endures to the end will be saved saved from what saved from everything why well here's the big why because God's because the gospel proclamation is Christ's priority it's not about setting dates knowing times and seasons and all of that Go back to verse 9 with me and look at this. First of all, Jesus says, You will stand to bear witness before them. What are we bearing witness to? To Him. Verse 10, The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And Jesus speaks of this in a way that it is His first priority. Before the end of the age, before I can return, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. There's the point of focus. We'll come back to that in, in just a moment, but I, I did a little research. The Joshua Project has been a really helpful resource. It's a group that, for a number of years, has made the effort to just get out across the globe and, and find out where the gospel is available, where it is not available, uh, what people groups and ethnic groups are, are being evangelized and where churches are growing and what groups remain largely untouched. In one of their reports recently, they write, it is difficult to estimate exactly how many people groups are in the world today, but our best guess is 16,543. And when we use the word people groups, that's interchangeable with the, the terminology that Jesus was using all nations. People groups, ethnic groups. But out of these Listen to this, this is staggering. There are 6,701 that are considered to be unreached. And that map, those red regions, are where the, the largest number of unreached people groups exists today. Green areas, there's gospel access. Yellow areas? Uh, some. Red areas, not much. And if I'm reading what Jesus says accurately, and I don't think there's any hidden meaning here, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all people groups. So if, according to this statistic, 42.1% of the world's people groups have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ, I submit to you, Jesus is not coming very soon. Now, I know that flies in the face because some say, well, we believe in the imminent return of Christ. Yes, we do. We live and we are prepared as if he could come back today, yet at the same time, what is he saying there? The end will not come until the people groups have heard. So you want Jesus to come soon? Get busy sharing the gospel. It might even be that some of you would be snatched up right out of this assembly and replanted in the middle of that red zone. Now, you you wouldn't be the only one. There are hundreds and thousands. I've known people through the years who've served in some really hard-to-reach places. And I mean just like, first of all, it's hard to get there personally, physically. But second of all, if you can get there and and complete that journey, to, to share Christ is also really difficult. But God's got people going there. But you know, it's also true in the state of Utah. I know a couple of years ago, there was some research done. There were 140, at that time, there were 140 little towns and locations that had no gospel preaching church like this in them, in Utah. So you don't have to travel to the other side of the planet to be in a red zone. That's sobering, isn't it? But it's also exhilarating and i say we are alive right now have more tools at our disposal than the first century apostles did you know how hard it was just to get from point a to point b the kind of travel arrangements that that paul and peter and barnabas and that crew had to make sailing on ships just to go a few hundred miles man you can board a plane in salt lake city today and actually be in the middle of the red zone within 24 hours they carried the word of God around in pieces. They didn't have Genesis to Revelation available. And, and we've got the, the good old fashioned edition of God's word printed you know, on paper. How outdated is that? Or better yet, I not only have copies, multiple copies of God's word, and, and this little pencil thin tablet, as a, as a pastor, I've got this, bible study program called logos and i've got over 1600 study tools available right here and that doesn't even count what i could access on the internet i could load up right now with this piece of equipment and a charger buy my plane ticket off of this go to the airport just with this be anywhere in the world and start preaching christ in short order a few other logistics would have to take care of but how much do we need I don't know about you, but I want Jesus to come. And if he's saying to me, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, then I say, man, I better be busy right now. And so must you. There's another little piece of encouragement, though. The, the final word that he gives in verse 11 is, it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Because some of you are like, man, I... I mean, I want this to happen, I'm willing to go, but I don't know what I would say, I don't know how. Now granted, in its context, he's talking about in, when you're being persecuted for Christ's sake and the suffering is breaking out and you're just arrested and hauled in before uh, the, the rulers, you don't need to write out your speech from the prison cell to be ready to, to speak there. The Holy Spirit's going to speak through you. But you know, it's also true that when you just open your mouth and you speak the truth concerning Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit attends that proclamation. And then he brings us back to this point, verse 13, for my name's sake, because it's ultimately about Jesus. We do it because of him, we do it for him. So now what? Well, let me wrap it up with just three, three thoughts for you. First of all, look to Jesus. Stop looking at the stock market or coronavirus. Stop worrying about presidential campaigns or locust plagues. Stop worrying about global warming. And, and I can tell you, it will not bring planet Earth to its end. Because the creator who put all this in motion has said, I uphold the world, the universe, with my word. Can we pollute it? Sure. Can we pump smog into the air that creates respiratory issues? Yes. But earth is not going to spontaneously combust because it gets too warm. And as much as you'd like to think that if the oceans rise enough, maybe you'll actually have beachfront property in a couple more years, not here in Utah, and actually not even Midland, California, or upstate South Carolina where I come from. The ocean's going to stay right where God put it. Look to Jesus. Number two, live in faith. Live in faith because he is the ancient of days. I wanna go back to that passage and just read that one more time. Daniel 7, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. That is the God who's always been and who always will be. Look at this description. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. That's like a a numberless mass there in service to him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him The court sat in judgment and the books were open. That's our God. So live in faith. Plan for tomorrow, but don't worry about tomorrow. And then finally, get busy in gospel mission. Every one of us must take a part in this. It it includes prayer. It includes you being in the word. it, It includes you and me being alert to opportunities that arise just to speak A word about Jesus. Sometimes it's a strategic question. Have you ever considered the claims of Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ? Little questions like that can open eternally significant conversations. So share the gospel personally. Join in the mission of this church to spread the gospel. We're not going to live in fear because we serve under the ancient of days. He's got it all covered. And we're also not going to retreat to some kind of apocalyptic mentality that says let's just kind of hunker down and, 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 and bunker down uh, and, and just try to survive until Jesus returns. No, there's really big, important stuff for us to do here and around the world. Let's bow our heads together, please. And I want you to take a moment to respond to God's word. We've covered a ton today. There's more yet to be. But if we can bring it back to just a few basic things, first of all, are you looking to Jesus? Or are the eyes of your heart more full of stock market meltdown and coronavirus and presidential elections and global warming? Has that really captured your heart? Turn your back on it and look to Jesus. Number two, are you living in faith? And are you busy about the things that the Lord says these are your priorities? And then number three, are you participating in the gospel mission? Are there people that you are engaged with relationally, their friends or family members, and you actively pray for them and you actively speak of Christ as you have that opportunity? Are you engaged in gospel mission? As you think that through, what, what is the next step the Lord wants you to take? Father, as we come to the conclusion of this this morning's study, we pray that you would give us eyes to see your truth and to even see this world, to rightly interpret the headlines and circumstances that create so much fear and turmoil. We're excited when we consider the beginning of the birth pains because that signals that even through suffering, you are going to accomplish great things, and we want to be part of that. We yield ourselves to you and pray that you would give us grace to believe all that you have revealed to us and that we would do everything that you have called us to do. We're thankful for this little assembly, for those who've so faithfully invested themselves and we, we live in a location where there are so many people who still need to hear the gospel. And While it may be your will to call some out of this place and position them in the middle of some of those the red zone, as we were looking at the map earlier, we, we live in a red zone in many ways. We know that there are thousands upon thousands right here around us who need to hear the good news that Jesus lived and died and rose again, that they might never die. The Spirit of God, come. Put your strength into our souls. Fire our imaginations that we may... Think your thoughts and be ambitious for your plans and purposes and cause us to be among those faithful ones who endure to the end because you have promised that if we do, we will be saved. So take these words, seal them to our hearts, grow us and change us by them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.